1: My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Dave Rice. We're at the Shehalem Tasting Room in Newburgh. It's August 14th, 2023. Dave, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure.
2: First question is, why wine? Wow. Um, I'd have to go back to my graduate school days. I, uh, I, uh, I grew up in kind of a strict family. We didn't drink. There was no alcohol in the, in the house. And um, in my graduate school days, I became disenchanted with with the whole academia thing and um, I began to, to hang out at the, uh, the wine shop at the, the local liquor store in Iowa City. Uh, got curious and um, had drunk a little bit of wine in college but nothing really very good and began to kind of dabble here and there as my budget allowed which was not very much. Uh, my first bottle of real wine was Fetzer Zinfandel. Couldn't tell you the vintage, but it was in the 70s, so it was a while ago. Um, I kind of caught the bug, and that bug kind of stayed with me through a couple of different career twists and turns, working for the, then working for the state of Illinois, uh, a job that I was more disenchanted with than graduate school. Um, And I began corresponding to um, wineries in California and they were very polite and these were the days before word processing and so these were all one-off letters to about a hundred wineries I got one real response encouraging me uh, from the the owner of Morgan Winery in California and he said come on out to California we'd love for you to, to, to come and visit and work and I said great how much does it pay and he said well it would be an unpaid internship and I said that's not gonna work for me. Uh, so I stayed with what I was doing and my wife and I eventually moved to Austin, Texas and I kind of bulldozed my way into the wine industry there in, in uh, wholesale and just kind of took things incrementally and eventually bumped into a bunch of people from the uh, Oregon wine industry. Some of the kind of seminal uh, wineries of, of the industry and some of the pioneers and um, it, from there, it just, it just took off. I, I had had to go west coast and it seemed to make sense to, to be here. So uh, there's a longer version of it, but that's the short version. And um, it's been my passion, one of my passions, uh, all my adult life.
1: Well, we're gonna get some of that longer version here in a second, but let's back up to a minute and talk about before, life before wine. So tell us about where you were born and raised sure. and where you were headed before uh, wine.
2: Yeah, well, I was uh, born and raised in a very small town in southern Illinois, pretty close to St. Louis, a uh, Shell Oil refinery town, known for the outstanding quality of the air. Uh, I was supposed to be six four. Um, I'm not. Uh, I blame the pollution. Um, My father was a Presbyterian minister, his father was a Presbyterian minister, Uh, many people in his family had been and my twin brother and I broke the mold. Um, But uh, we grew up in this little small town and since my father was a pastor we moved around a bit. I lived primarily in central Illinois, small towns in central Illinois. Um, Went to university at Illinois State University in Normal outside of Bloomington. Um, at a fork in the road my, my junior year I had to decide between law school and uh, graduate studies in English. Law school was, um, I, I could have taken the LSAT but I, I was not real keen on the hundred thousand dollar bite that that might take in debt which is a lot more now but it was that much then so I went the other direction and we've already covered how that went. (laughs) Uh, I did that for a year and a half and became very disenchanted with that. But uh, we we lived all over Illinois and then graduate school in Iowa City. Um, My wife and I, uh, we got married and moved back to her hometown of Springfield, Illinois, where I worked for the state of Illinois for two years and uh, really had to get out of there. So um, she had an offer in Austin, Texas. I didn't know what I'd be doing in Austin, Texas. I knew I wasn't gonna work for the state of Texas. Um, so yes, as we covered before, I went to work for a wholesaler in Austin, Texas, and, and um, then from there here in very late 1988 to work for Yamhill Valley Vineyards in McMinnville. And uh, I don't know really how many wineries there were at that time. My memory tells me about 75 in the northern part of the Willamette Valley. You know, it seemed like I knew everyone and everyone knew everyone uh, in those days and you could put most people in the wine industry in one very large room and and that would be it. No longer the case, of course. So
1: tell me about your, you mentioned kind of an initial interest in wine in grad school. Uh, tell me about starting to learn wine, and what made you decide that that was the path you wanted to take once you were in Texas?
2: We, we moved to Austin for my wife's career. She worked for IBM for 37 years, and that was one of the first stops. And uh, I really had no idea what I was going to do. And so I just kind of thought, well, I have an interest in wine. Let's, let's see where that goes. So. Um, it really was not that hard to break into the industry at that time because there weren't a lot of people who were extremely knowledgeable in wine. I mean, let's, that's the reality of it in, in Austin, Texas in those days. And so um, they didn't know what I didn't know because they didn't know a whole lot. So uh, pretty easy to do that. Um, selling wine, of course, is, is hard. I didn't have any formal training in sales and uh, so I I learned a lot of people skills and a lot about the industry but I really didn't have a good grasp on sales itself until I left the wine industry four years later to make money uh, and then went to work for ADP, the big payroll company. Um, I had absolutely no background in that or accounting or anything. I just had two children and needed a job it was just bottom line and, and could not afford to fail, period, end of story. So um, I was very successful at that. Uh, it's one of the premier sales training programs in the world, solution sales, and it's uh, I, I credit that particular company with my ability to do my job better here and to connect with people and to be able to understand people's uh, desires and needs and and wants and and the things that motivate them to buy wine and to value wine and and to just kind of connect on that next level instead of just selling people the same thing all the time. So um, that, curiously, that uh, departure from the wine industry helped me when I came back to the wine industry in uh, 2000, let's see, when would that have been? 2008 I came back here to work part-time when the economy started to crumble with Washington Mutual falling and you know I, at that time I was selling software and professional services and uh, all of those companies that were purchasing those uh, were kind of dominoes and whole commercial real estate fallout so by 2009 I was employed here pretty much full-time and have gone through uh, a couple of different Positions here, uh, before finally kind of landing in my current position, which is director of hospitality. But uh, I consider myself a sales professional who knows how to treat people. Uh, so uh, it's it's not the green jacket at Walmart at, at the at the entrance. There's a bit more to it. Um, so I spend a lot of my time with people on the phone around the country, connecting, making sure that they feel connected, wine club members, etc., and then hosting guests at the winery, whether they're club members or uh, visitors or media people or uh, wholesale distributors or what have you, it's, it, it's a wide range. Um, and then uh, other duties as assigned, <laughs> of course. It's the wine industry, so that's how that goes.
1: So tell me about selling wine. What's different about selling wine than selling software? What's what, what's 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 different about it for you?
2: Well, the biggest thing is that when people come into that transaction, they come in in a pretty good mood, and they usually leave in a much better mood. <coughs> uh, when you're trying to sell a, a five million dollar enterprise software application, there's a much much more tension and contentiousness to to that relationship where one party feels like they need to win and the other party ends up losing something. Uh, it, it's very rare that both parties feel like they've equally won. Uh, with with this, I, I feel like everyone's a winner. I, I, I don't meet people typically who are, come in here in a bad mood and they very rarely, very rarely leave in any worse mood than they came in. Um, so that's that's, that's the biggest one. Um, the other one is that we get to be part of people's lives in a way that we don't necessarily always understand. Uh, if I sell somebody, say, a mixed case of wine, I don't know what they do with that. But on occasion, they'll email me or call me and, or send me a picture, text me and say, we had this for our, our son's graduation or we had this Tuesday night with, you know, Papa Murphy's Pizza, whatever, uh, and really enjoyed it. And I, I, I enjoy that connection because that, that really kind of humanizes the whole thing. So it's no longer just a transaction. We're, we're part of people's lives in either incidental or very important ways. Uh, people will buy wine for the birth of, or birth of children to, to uh, um, celebrate maybe a 10th birthday. Child won't be drinking, but they will be uh, at 10 years old. They will want to drink that wine. Um, anniversaries, of course. So uh, a lot of those things—they're very meaningful to me. And I don't always get that feedback, but I get that enough that I understand that those things happen. And I, I understand. And, and so when I'm selling wine, or when somebody has expressed an interest in wine, I really want to know what's what's their intention. Are they buying this for a particular? Occasion, is this to just hang on to until an occasion arises? Uh, what, what's the connection there? And, and that goes back to the whole solution sales aspect of my training of really understand the psychology of, of why people buy and what interests them. Um, and I like that. that. That gets me up in the morning and keeps me going all day.
1: Tell me about your sort of wine education. How did you learn about wine and what, and what attracted you to keep
2: learning about wine? Um, it's all self-taught. So I haven't done WSET or any of those things. I, I've actually considered it at various times. I've just been too busy selling wine. Um, and, and I've considered it, but um, I, 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 I have a couple of key skills and one of which is I can remember almost every wine I've ever had. Um, Now if I could count cards that would you know that would be an even more lucrative skill Um, But I can't do that. I guess because I'm not as interested. I don't know Um, But I can remember almost every wine that I've had so if somebody asks me Hey, uh, I've got this wine in the cellar, and you know, it's it's such-and-such a vintage. You know how long should I hold on to it? I usually have a pretty good idea of what I what I can tell them It's not perfect, but I can you know I have kind of this more than vague recollection of what that wine is uh, and so I can I can help them with that um, the, the other kind of key skill I have I, I think is is food and wine pairing I don't know a lot about chemistry but I know enough about the chemistry of food to know what what foods can be compatible with others and then I'm um, just flexible enough to experiment with that and suggest that people take a few risks and try things and see if they can accidentally bump onto something that's magic uh, because I've done that at home just either because it's I, I don't have the exact wine that might pair with that or because I just figure what the heck let's try this I've got five hundred bottles of wine I might as well try it so um, those are kind of kind of my key s- skills in terms of just recollection um, so yeah I, I I enjoy using those
1: so talk about your your kind of wine sales uh, tell me about what in your experience sells wine is it is it the story is it the wine is it the, the person selling it what what is the biggest key for people when they're choosing a wine
2: um, I, I think it depends on whether it's an in person transaction or whether it's on the phone or virtual um, but what I can tell you doesn't sell wine most of the time is ratings. There might have been a time when, say, a Robert Parker or Wine Spectator score would sell the wine, period. Um, but I think most, most wine consumers, at least the ones that I deal with, are sophisticated enough to know that those things are fairly subjective and don't necessarily reflect their tastes. And they may know which of those reviewers is closest to their their likes and dislikes, but the numerical score itself means nothing if the style of the wine uh, or the, the stage of the wine and its development isn't aligned with what they want to do with it. So um, what, I th- what I think sells wine is in, in person is that passion may have to have the great wine to put in front of them. So in, in this setting here, in our tasting room, People have to enjoy the wine. Um, Key to that is an environment in which they feel comfortable to enjoy the wine. They don't feel challenged or intimidated. They feel comfortable and relaxed, and they can taste the wine. Uh, As they enjoy the wine, I think the passion about Shehalem and about the wine itself, uh, I think, is key to kind of of igniting that interest in their part. Um, I think we've all had the experience of buying wine someplace, you get it home, you go, the heck was I thinking, here, this is not how I remember this, Uh, I've certainly had that. Um, So I try not to go overboard on that because I don't want my excitement and all of the kind of surroundings of things to to color somebody's... a judgment about the wine itself so I try to get them to respond in terms of what they're tasting what they're feeling how they're perceiving the wine what's it doing for them and I don't talk too much about what I think about the wine unless they ask me directly and I almost never answer that question until they've told me what they think and, and for that reason we don't have Tasting notes on our flight list here of it tastes like such-and-such and and smells like flowers and you know It may be all of those things to us, but that's not necessarily how people respond to the wine Um, So um, and and as it pertains to selling wine over the phone or virtually or something like that uh, I, I think the passion about the wine really comes through there so people will ask me what do you think of this wine? And I'll be very candid. I, I won't ever speak poorly about a wine, and I don't have to with Chehalem Sh- wines because they're always very good. Um, but somebody may ask me, would you purchase this wine or that wine? And I will try to key in on why they're asking that and what it is that, that they want from the wine to, to give them the, the best recommendation. Of course, I've got tools here to see what they've purchased in the past. What they purchased in the past is not really the complete roadmap because if people keep buying the same wines and the same styles year after year and they don't branch out, they become disenchanted with a brand or with a particular style and they eventually move on. And I think that's one of the reasons that uh, wineries suffer attrition in customers and club members is that people tend to get this tunnel vision and. They, we, we give them what they want, okay? Well, the customer's always right. Sometimes it's good to push that envelope a little bit and say, take a risk out of this case of wine you're getting. Maybe try one new wine and 11 bottles of that wine that you really love and tell me what you think. And eight to nine times out of 10, I get good positive feedback out of that. And when it's not, oh my God, I love that wine, it's, hey, I'm glad I tried that wine. So it's really a no-lose situation for everyone. And um, so those are those are the things that that helped me in just, you know, phone sales and virtual uh, Zoom and Teams conversations, things of that nature.
1: So tell me about your you mentioned getting to Oregon in the late late 1988, working at Yamhill Valley. Uh, you mentioned how this, sort of the size of the industry. What were your impressions of the people Uh, making wine at that time and of the wines they were making here
2: in Oregon? Oh, that's a great question. Well, my first impression was meeting these uh, pioneers at the Driscoll Hotel in downtown Austin, which is a historic, really great hotel, sitting around the bar just having a drink, just talking. Um, There was a lot of flannel, a lot of beards, a lot of real homespun kind of uh, attitude about wine. I'd been selling some of those wines for about a year and a half. Um, I, I say I'd been selling. I'd been trying to sell them. Uh, at that time, the market in, in Texas was Cabernet, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc. It was not Pinot was not a thing. It's certainly not Oregon Pinot Noir, as they would have said. Um, so there wasn't a lot of success there. So meeting them kind of helped connect some dots. They it, they were not very sophisticated, and that's a severe understatement. Um, in general, my impression was they didn't have a clue how to sell their wine, and I think they'd probably admit that they were not salespeople. None of them came from a sales background. Engineering, law, I mean, you name it, but anything but sales. And they weren't hiring salespeople because the quantity of wine was so small and initially didn't sell very well and then you know with uh, um, the big tasting in Paris and some love from the wine spectator things started to sell and then along comes the 84 vintage which was an unmitigated disaster and then the 85 vintage which was not as successful by any means as 83 and all of a sudden people were needing to sell wine and um, there were more and more wineries, and uh, I, I, they, they started hiring direct salespeople, and that's kind of when I came on board. I came on board at the very cusp of, um, at the very end of the 85 vintage in the market and the 86 vintage coming on, and that wine was, those wines were deemed to be horribly expensive at 1650 dollars a bottle. Way overpriced for what they were was the feedback that I would get from a lot of of my customers, and at that time I was selling winery direct mm-hmm. uh, all over all over Western Oregon. Um, so there was there was some there was some awkward times there, and then um, that Pinot Gris began began to. Build in popularity, there was actually some volume of Pinot Gris being produced, and it was like shooting fish in a barrel. I sold a hundred cases of Pinot Gris in a week in 1989 or 90, and um, and then the following year, people wanted to know, well, why weren't we doing that again? Well, 12 other wineries were doing the same thing, and then 20, and then 50, and then and so. It was, uh, it was a tough time to sell wine, and um, and then in 1992 I left the industry um, to make actually to make more money. It was it was a very it was a very very tough time to, to be in the business uh, for for everyone. It was uh, there was a lot of excitement of course, but it was it, they were very challenging times. And it really, I don't think, got a whole lot better until close to 2000. And by that time there was a, a bit more sophistication. There were, there were marketing resources being thrown into, uh, into it. People were depending less on the, the one broker in the Willamette Valley who was representing all of the wines. And doing more of that representation themselves, so connecting more directly with their wholesalers and direct consumers, and and that started to help. Uh, but it was still pretty homespun, and it um, I, I think it probably didn't improve a whole lot until Michelle Kaufman got into the industry and elevated the game for everyone.
1: That was the tipping point.
2: I think it, I, th- I think th- it was. I think you're right. Yeah.
1: At, at the time when you were working there, late 80s, early 90s, did you have a sense that it could become what it's become?
2: You know, interestingly, when I came out the first time in August of 1988, I thought, wow, this place is awesome. Uh, it was 96 and 100% humidity in, in Austin. It was 78 during the day, and it was 60 at night, I had a cotton sweater on, I thought, man, this place is awesome, I love this place. And it was gorgeous, and I was just kind of in love with the whole thing, I was, it was kind of a romanticized thing. And uh, I, you know, quite honestly, I hadn't like done my due research, due, due diligence into how things were going. Um, I just thought, well, I'm, I'm in. So we, we uh, put our house on the market, um, we decided to move even though my wife didn't yet have a transfer. Uh, we had a one and a half year old child, um, kind of insanity that I would never get on board with now. But we just we just did it because I apparently wasn't smart enough to not know any better. Um, but I was, I was very taken with the passion that people had. And I just thought, this is going to be something. I never in my wildest dreams imagined it would be like this. It, it never occurred to me it would be anything more than just a, a, um, a growing, passionate group of artisans that carve out a, a, a place in the wine industry that's special, but kind of small. I, I, I just never imagined it being big in any way. And then when he came back, obviously he
1: came back in 2008, so big big stretch there. Yeah. Tell me what had changed.
2: Um, a lot more wineries for one thing, a lot more competition, uh, a lot of reliance on direct sales, tasting room sales. When I had started it was all, almost all wholesale sales, so you'd uh, sell your wine to the distributor, and you'd wait for a check, which would come you know, anytime they wanted to send it. And, um, and then you, know, you cashed that, and then you had money. Um, more reliance on tasting room sales, um, more reliance on wine club sales, um, but, but not even in those days, not as much as today. There were still wineries in 2008, 2009 that didn't have wine clubs, or, or they weren't really very functional and uh, important parts of the business now, any winery that's of any importance relies extraordinarily on, on wine club sales. Not necessarily for the majority of their sales, but a, a good, consistent cash flow, dependable, uh, forecastable revenue. The way people make rosé started to change. Instead of instead of it being a saunier from an active, warm Noir fermentation, there began to be more experimentation with direct press and, and more attention paid to rosé as a category. It still wasn't much until maybe about 2012 or 13, which is when it really kind of exploded, but at that point it was all about the Pinot and then, well, let's take some of this off of here. We'll make a little rosé every once in a while. Um, what else changed? Um, in the early years when I was here, Müller-Turgau and Riesling, Sylvaner, and some of these other minor grapes were a little bit more of a factor. Müller-Turgau pretty much disappeared, Sylvaner, uh, Gewürztraminer, a lot of those things disappeared. It was all about the Pinot. Chardonnays were not very good when I came here. In fact, they were pretty horrible in my estimation. Um, and so Chardonnay has improved. So I think what's happened in the interim is more diversification, still emphasis on Pinot, but more diversification and a willingness to invest at least a portion of the business in something besides Pinot Noir to have a more balanced portfolio, which I think was very important during COVID for those people that made something besides Pinot. They had something to sell when the smoke taint issue became prevalent
1: how did how had customers changed uh, obviously you mentioned that Pinot Noir when you're in Texas wasn't a thing Oregon wasn't really a thing how had sort of customers changed and their expectations changed
2: I think just more access to wine. One of the things that I noticed that about Portland was uh, a huge explosion in the number of small wholesale distributors. So Italian based, Italian emphasis, French, um, just lots and lots of small distributors and uh, specialized and very passionate people that all had their, their real loyal um, customers and, and clients. And I think that helped, at least here in state, it helped a lot to for the sake of the entire industry so uh, there was a lot more interest in the restaurant and hotel scene in just new and interesting wines whatever they may be whether they're Willamette Valley or Oregon wines or or not Uh, and that had I think kind of a trickle down effect throughout the whole industry Um, it, it still is a very very healthy situation where we've got net pricing in Oregon so The smallest customer to the largest gets the same price, so there's some equity in terms of what they can offer. And that encourages a lot of diversity and a lot of selection, so you don't have uh, companies like Total Wine dominating the landscape and narrowing down what what people see to just this, and therefore the the customer only knows what they see. So that helps. Um, Nationally, it it would be hard for me to answer nationally because I, Cause i don't really work in the wholesale world but i would guess that uh, around the country wine lovers everywhere have more selection they can buy wine online they have a lot more options in terms of how they can purchase wine and i think all of that leads to more experimentation and more creativity in terms of how they how, how they drink and of course I think a lot of people cook more at home. There's a lot more interest in food and in the quality of food and in dining at home than there was 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, just look at all the cooking shows and all the cooking shows focus on wine to some extent and I think that's a that's I don't think that's a reflection of our population in the country. I think that's what led the population. I don't think that they responded to that so much as as led that charge.
1: So you mentioned you had you've had a variety of roles here since you started. Tell me about kind of the initial role you had and and how it's grown and, and evolved over the years.
2: Um, it, my role has kind of evolved with this room, this this building. When I came here. We had a stand-up bar in what's now the lounge area of this tasting room that was an l shaped stainless steel table, basically. And that was kind of the model for tasting rooms at that time. You'd walk in, you'd kind of belly up to the bar, and you'd say, I'd like a taste of the wines. You know, what's your flight? And you might have six people at a time, something like that, it was never really all that big. And um, it was all very kind of retail sales, direct, face-to-face sales at that point. And so I was um, I, I was a tasting room associate, uh, basically one of two or three here when we started. And there I, I started here the weekend that we opened this place, 4th of July weekend, 2008. Uh, the first Sunday I was here I was by myself and I saw exactly one person. And it slowly got better from that um, because People didn't know where this place was or what it was. And uh, finally, you know, it, it built. But then in, uh, and as, as this place evolved, we took wh- where we are now, which was a warehouse for case goods, pallets. There were probably three or four pallets where I'm sitting now of, uh, you know, different wines. And we would ship out of here. And I would pack, and then I would ship it. And uh, so that, those were, that, that was the job. And um, so eventually, we decided that this place was best used as a venue instead of a storage facility, which we uh, changed, I think, in 2012 and 13. And then we did a wholesale change here in in setting this up as a uh, seated table service area with a, a, a bar that people could walk up to so people would have options. So it's a kind of a modified service model where people come in and um, they can sit at the table and they get direct service. It's not waiters coming and going and leaving and just dropping wine. But I, I have done that. But at, around 2014, I became the sales and marketing manager here and then my my role basically stayed the same from then on but my title changed because I I really was not a marketing person we we have marketing people for that we have good marketing people that have marketing background and actually know what they're doing Um, but but I would have been loosely described as a marketing person at that time and so my my role is Instead of sales and hospitality is hospital, director of hospitality.
1: So let's talk about hospitality, it's a word, obviously a, a, a huge word in the industry. What does it mean to you and how, if at all, has that sort of definition changed for you?
2: Uh, for me it means connection, pure and, pure and simple. Uh, it, it doesn't matter how elevated the situation and the surroundings are if you as a person don't connect with the person that you're dealing with. And sometimes that connection isn't as good as you'd like. And there's, there's people are human, that's just how it is. Um, but, but it starts with being friendly. And uh, I've always been a big fan of uh, putting, putting on a friendly face. I may have had the worst morning in the world coming in. You know, pipe broke at home and you know, whatever. But once you get here, my job, if I'm in front of people, is to uh, be friendly and welcoming and let them know that they're important, not by saying it, but by demonstrating it. And by demonstrating knowledge without telling them everything, but by being able to answer their questions and being able to give them key nuggets of information that let them know that without reciting the Gutenberg Bible to them. So um, that's, that's kind of how I approach it. Um, how has it changed? I don't know that it has changed. Uh, the environment here has changed, so you, you, know, you change with the environment. Now that we have table service, and by the way, I'm, I'm only here about two days a week, and so um, the rest of the time I'm on the phone doing other things and working at the winery, but uh, just focusing on what I do here when, I, when I'm here and when I am waiting. On, on uh, customers and wine club members, it hasn't changed all that much except that now instead of them approaching at a at a bar, I go to them, um, and that's an interesting dynamic because when you're at a tasting bar, you're standing up and you're, you're eye to eye, whereas when they're taste, tasting at a table, I'm standing, they're they're sitting, so. That, uh, that dynamic's a little different, so it's important for that to be a very friendly approach and, and not, I'm up here and you're down here and I'm gonna tell you how things are gonna be and this is, this is how it goes. Um, I, I look for subtle cues in their behavior as to what they're looking for. The first thing I will ask anybody is, where's home for you? Not are you local or are you visiting, but where's home for you? Second question might be, um, okay, so you're you're visiting. uh, What what brings you to the area? And that's the roadmap for the rest of the conversation. If they're here on business and squeezing in a couple of visits to wineries, um, that tells me that their time here is important because they've made time to come here. Uh, I will often ask them, how did you choose us? And they'll give a variety of answers. And um, all of those things give a roadmap for where the rest of that conversation goes. And uh, including conversations about wine club membership, what they enjoy, uh, what they've purchased, where they're going to go, where they've been and where they're going to go. Where they've been tells me how much money they might have left, especially if they bought. Uh, where they might go tells me whether they did their research and know what they're doing. Um, you know, and I have my prejudice as well. And um, so it, it all puts us in a, in a certain context. So, you know, if they, if they say they're going to a whole bunch of places that I think are just crazy, crazy choices just pulled out of a hat, that kind of tells me how their research approach went. And I can kind of re- rethink my approach for that. The people I think are, are pretty knowledgeable. They, they do their research. They check, um, they check internet sources. They check reviews. They um, Google reviews. Not so much Yelp these days, thankfully. But um, they, they look for wineries that are highly recommended. And they take a look at that 20 or 30, and they kind of whittle it down to where they want to go. And, and they, they end up here.
1: So you talked earlier and uh, about the, kind of the other part of your job, the kind of wine club follow-up and things like that, so a different kind of hospitality. Tell me how you approach that sort of, uh, you, you have an existing relationship with this person already or this family already. How do you approach that and what is the sort of the goal of those kinds of conversations?
2: Uh, well, that's a really good question because I'm easing into that right now. Our next wine club fulfillment is in September. So I'm starting the process of contacting existing wine club members uh, especially those that I know either need some hand-holding or they're new enough that they have questions, they haven't had enough of our wines to to have a background to know what's what. Um, and there are certain people that just like to talk about it, want some recommendations and trust me enough to give them recommendations. So I, I have kind of a working knowledge of, of those and I go through that list and I, I talk to a number of people and I'll, I'll ask them, um, how, their, how their tastes have changed or if they've changed, how they've enjoyed the last wines, uh, what they have been enjoying besides our wine, etc. cetera. Uh, do they have any events coming up for which they want to add wine to their wine club for the holidays or any number of reasons? Uh, is there a special wine that they have been wanting to, to acquire? We give what are called loyalty points for purchase, so every time somebody purchases, they accrue points that they can redeem, and so that's like money you find on the ground. There's a $100 bill that I can spend on, on wine, and so they may wanna buy one special bottle of wine for one special occasion with that. And that's all part of just digging into the database to look at that information and pre-call planning. So for me, pre-call planning is super important. 20, 30 seconds of gathering information and having some idea of where I might go. It doesn't tell me where I'm going to end, but it tells me where I might initially go. And then every conversation takes on a life of its own after that. during the pandemic, I was kind of like a virtual bartender. People would tell me all kinds of crazy things, uh, all kinds of conversations that I never would have imagined I could have or want to have uh, in some cases. Um, but a lot of that happens when I call people for various reasons when I'm, when I'm selling wine. Um, the goals that I have, I always have a goal of increasing the sale because I'm a salesman. I'll be honest. So I always want to increase that sale, but I want to increase it in one of two areas. Either wines they have never had before and get them to branch out, because that's what encourages longevity of a relationship, Uh, or kind of keying in on that one or two wines that they've always wanted that they didn't think they could afford or didn't want to afford outside their price range. And maybe, scale down a couple of the wines here, so you can buy something special over there and try that. And I think people appreciate that, because I'm, the, I'm serving their needs instead of mine. And uh, if you'd asked me in college if I'd ever become a sales professional, I would have thought that would be the very last thing on God's green earth that I would ever be. Uh, but here I am and uh, but it's all a perception of what sales is because I I think a lot of people think sales is something that's done to you and what I've learned over the years is it's it's something that we do together.
1: So you told us about kind of you started here at Chehalem as this as this building was opening tell me about uh, your initial kind of impressions of Shehalem, where Shehalem was as a brand at that point, and obviously it's gone undergone a lot of growth and change. Yeah. Tell me about some of that.
2: Wow, um, that's a whole conversation. Um, so I came to Shehalem. I had a short list of about five wineries that I wanted, I would consider working for, because I, I wasn't ever going to work for a company that I didn't respect all of the products. I've never worked for a company that wasn't either the top, in their top organization in their field or one of the very top organizations in the field, just never had an interest in that. So there were about five or six that I would consider and Shahalem um, was one of the first and I, I had known Harry Peterson Edry, the founder of Shahalem, for a number of years. I had enjoyed the wines, some good friends of ours had been wine club members, and so I I felt a connection. So I called him and he said, well, you know, we're opening this tasting room in downtown Newburgh. You're welcome to come by and take a look at the progress. And so I did, and I thought, well, this might be kind of cool. Uh, But it wasn't going to open for about four months. So I did some other things uh, in the meantime. And when we started, it it was very eclectic. The room, the the space here was very avant-garde. Um, Harry had a a real penchant for um, abstract art, and that was reflected in in the the decor, and it was reflected in the labels. Uh, the wines were outstanding. Um, the the diversity wasn't quite there. It was really mostly about the Pinot and there was a little bit of Riesling sold, but there was there was not a lot of, of diversity to the portfolio, at least in terms of what was selling. And there was perhaps too much diversity in, in some areas like Riesling and some other some other things. And so kind of slowly over the years that that kind of got whittled down. Uh, When Bill Stoller took over full ownership of the winery in 2018, there was a a lot of streamlining that that came about from that. We ended up paring down from four vineyard-designated Rieslings, well, three vineyard-designated and one blend to just one that can sell. And uh, we wanted to make sure we were, trying to make sure we didn't make wines that were just sitting in inventory. And um, so we, we remain committed to that to this day, and, and that's an ongoing issue. We make 14 different wines here. We make uh, six different Pinots, and we make two different Chardonnays, and we make uh, Rosé, and we, we make Gruneweltliner, and Pinot Blanc, and uh, I don't know, I'm missing, I'm forgetting something, Gamay. So we make 14 different wines, um, juggling all that in a, in a time frame that where we can sell through all of those at the same time is is a kind of a monumental task. It's it's not easily done, and we don't always do it perfectly. But um, I, I think what what has happened is we're we're all aligned together as an organization to try to make sure that we're as close to our goal of of doing that as possible. Instead of some people working with that and some people, you know. Un- Disconnected from the sales side, not really being next to that issue and knowing about it or caring about it. So it's it's just a it's just a, a much better situation now where we're all trying to make sure that we're not only making great wine, but you know, golly, sell it. So those those are important things, and I, I think we do a pretty good job of that. And it's just an ongoing challenge because the the nature of our uh, wine club demographics and our guests is changing all the time. And you're looking two or three years down the road from when you produce the wine and things everything changes. You don't anticipate you're going to have a pandemic. Uh, so that doesn't get factored into forecasting. Um, you don't anticipate that you're going to have a, a new wine club that blows up uh, and, and goes in a different direction and that some of your older wine club members age out, um, you know, for medical reasons or whatever, uh, all of those things factor into it. So it's, um, it's always been an easy, a, a, a difficult business to forecast sales. And I just think we, we do a much better job of it now than we did in, say, 08, 09, those early years of, of identifying how to do that or at least being conscious of it.
1: So let's talk about, you've talked about, a little bit about the changes of the industry already. Let's talk a bit more about that. You've obviously, you, you saw it at a very early stage, and you've, and you've been with it for a while now. Uh, what does the Oregon industry look like to you now, 2023? Uh, what are the biggest changes or characteristics of it, and, and where is it going?
2: Um, I, I think I see like three tiers of producers here. I see the larger producers that are... Very sophisticated in their business model because they're they may be owned by large corporations that that uh, manage that uh, and have tremendously strong distribution networks. and then you have kind of the mid tier Producers like the Stoller Wine Group that is very sophisticated, but not owned by out-of-state interests, not owned by corporate America uh, that are are very good at what they do and those are, I don't think there are a tremendous number of those. Then there are a lot of very small, wineries that are family owned, uh, very, still very homespun. They're trying to do all the social media themselves. They're doing all the traveling themselves. They're doing uh, all the accounting. They're doing all of those things themselves. And so that's kind of, I don't want to say the bottom tier, but that's the small production tier of things. And those wineries are operating in a sense kind of in the same way when I got here. They just are making better wine and they may be more sophisticated personally in what they could do. But they're wearing 12 hats and they're wearing themselves out. And uh, and, and that's got to be a very, very difficult business for them. And I, I think that passion keeps them going. But I think that's why you see a lot more of those smaller producers selling and, and being acquired and, uh, in mergers and acquisitions. Um, because it's always been a difficult business. And it's, in, in a lot of ways, it's a young person's business. So once you have done it for 20 or 30 years, you're, you're done. You're done. So uh, I have a lot of respect for people that can and want to do that, but I think that that's, um, that's something that really hasn't changed all that much. The world around them has changed, and the tools they have to use are more sophisticated. But, but they're still you know, managing everything. Um, I think the industry is much better respected. We, I think we have the highest percentage of 90 plus rated wines of any growing region in the country. That's something that we all are very proud of and that didn't happen by accident. That was a combination of, of passion and sheer will and in a lot of cases, uh, capital being plowed into it with Silicon Valley Bank getting into the business uh, many years ago, and that's a whole different conversation, but that, that, that alone, I think, enabled people to scale up and to be more serious and, and to acquire better equipment and to do things in a more professional manner.
1: Where's it going next?
2: I, I You know, um, I don't know, but I would suspect there probably will be more acquisitions by large corporations and foreign interests. There's, you know, with, with Antonori acquiring wineries here. Uh, I, I suspect that there's a lot of interest in the Willamette Valley wine industry just because it's such an attractive growing industry and has such a cachet in the market that uh, I think that'll be quite attractive to larger companies so I suspect that that trend will continue and I suspect that a lot of family owned wineries will will persist in holding out and not wanting to sell out to the man and I, I hope both of those things can be true to a certain extent and have some balance uh... because if if the industry becomes Napa with tenor 20 companies owning 10 wineries each and everything is a is a wine group of X number of wineries controlled from San Francisco, I don't think that that's really going to be in the best interest of Oregonians or, or the Willamette Valley industry. Um, and I think a lot of people getting into this industry who are starting out small really want to stay small and really want to stay independent. and and do things their way. But that's a difficult road. Hopefully they're aware of it.
1: And tell me about what's uh, next for you uh, on the horizon, professionally, personally, anything you're looking ahead to or excited about.
2: Well, I'm not going to do this forever, so I'm going to retire at some point. I'm not going to tell people when that is, but it won't be five years down the road. Um, I I really enjoy what I do. Um, But I enjoy what I do well enough to respect myself that I don't want to keep doing it until I finally don't enjoy it because my health is not good or, or whatever. Uh, there, there are no guarantees in life and I've known enough people that retired and you know three years later they're dead because they waited too late to retire. So I don't know. Uh, you know at some point I'll retire. Uh, I, I want to stay connected to the industry in some fashion. I don't know exactly what that will be. Um, But, to this point, I still enjoy what I do a lot. I enjoy the customers, the guests, I enjoy the people I work with a lot. I enjoy the wines, I enjoy everything about what I do. Um, So I don't feel any particular need to do anything else now, but uh, I'm not... I'm not looking to climb the ladder in the Stoller wine group to, you know, the next rung. That's not where I'm at in life, I'm enjoying what I do now. The rung I'm on is quite good.
1: And uh, what advice would you have for someone who asked you about joining the Oregon wine industry or, or words of wisdom you would share?
2: Well, uh, the industry is primarily populated by younger people who get into the industry for the same reasons they get into the restaurant or other hospitality trade. They they find it exciting and interesting and oftentimes that luster kind of wears off when they realize how much work it is because it is, it's hard. And compensation in the wine industry, although it's getting better, Uh, is is still quite honestly not what it is in in other industries and and probably never will be. So if you're going to get into this industry, you have to do it because you have the love of the wine and the industry and the people that you work with and you have to be comfortable with the compensation. So if you go into it eyes open and do your research, I I say go for it. Um, The other advice I would give is to give it some time. You're not going to make $100,000 two years after you get into this industry. It will not happen. Uh, But if you get into this industry and learn and absorb, you may end up carving out a place for yourself that you didn't anticipate would ever be there, just like I never anticipated I'd be in a sales career most of my life when I was in college. I never saw that coming. Um, So you have to be open to letting that happen. And if you jump from job to job every two years, you, you don't get there. You have to be able to dig in, learn an organization, make contacts, network within an organization, find mentors, be a mentor. Those are things that, that feed your soul but also uh, fuel your career. So those are the things I'd recommend.
1: All right. All the questions that I have for you today. Anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that you'd like to cover? I,
2: I don't know. Michelle? All right. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Thank for you. For the time, sharing your story with us, sharing yeah. this beautiful space with us. Yeah. And letting us stay cool on this very, very hot day. All right. No problem. Thank you. We'll let you off the hook. Okay. Thanks. Thank you.